0: Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today, it's just me, and I thought I would answer some of your emails. I finally have some time to answer patron emails. This first email is from patron Renee. They write, How do you research for your podcast episodes? How do you do research for your podcast episodes? Do you have an order that you do things by? Any sequential steps? Is there a method for making connections, or or do they just happen? And is there such a thing as too much research? Do you have any other any any other information about your research methods that I'm not asking about? <laughs> How do you present your knowledge objectively while also giving out your opinion? Is there a perfect balance between the two? Are there fundamental questions for every research project that must be asked to get the most out of your research? Excellent questions, Renee. So this is interesting, because no one's ever asked me about this. And I definitely have a routine that I've developed over the past 11 plus years of podcasting, and honestly, also 20 plus years of being a teacher, being a professor at a university. Being a professor, you have to prepare. It's a, it's almost like, a, I don't know, think of like a wedding planner or something. Uh, my classes are three hours long and they're once a week. And so I have to essentially infotain, you know, a dozen students for three hours straight, which means that I have to vary the activities, I have to lay out the information in a in in a way that makes sense. I can't go over time, I have to make sure it all crams in. If I run out of time, I have to have a way of speeding up. If I if I uh, do everything too quickly, I have to make sure I have other things to do that I could fill the time with. I have to react to questions. I have to know the material forwards and backwards. I have to have notes. I have to do my research. And so you do this, you know, thousands of times, or I don't know, hundreds of times. Well, I guess we're coming up on our thousandth episode. So Uh, I guess I have probably and then all the teaching things I've probably done. So, you know, a couple thousand times you you get good at it and you get into a routine. And I have I definitely have a routine to this. Now, before getting into how I research for the podcast, I will say that it really depends on the topic. If the topic is, say, attachment, attachment theory. And I did what, like 14 hours of episode of, of podcasting for that then it's months of a process, right? And whereas if I'm researching, say, uh, some tinier uh, little topic in which I'm talking with Umberto about, like objectum sexuality, then I might spend a couple hours just kind of looking stuff up. Uh, But if I'm doing, say, a Michael Jackson episode, then that might take a couple weeks or maybe even a month or something. So... And, and depending on the, uh, the length of time, then that changes my process. But in general, I will say, that the first thing that I do is I gather as much written material as, as possible. This is actually kind of a fun step for me. I Part of my personality, my perfectionism, or just my uh, compulsive nature of trying to gather information, I love to just – I love gathering my notes – And it's sort of like if you've ever renovated your house and you've done the demo, it's sort of like that. It's like knocking down walls, pulling out sinks, throwing stuff in the garbage. It's fun because you don't really have to do anything with it yet. I'm gathering information. I don't have to think about it. I'm just gathering. And usually what I do is I, you know, use my university uh, search engine to search for all the clinical literature. And I also will pull books off of my shelf. I have a pretty extensive library uh, for, a, you know, a professor, therapist, and uh, there's usually at least a half dozen books that touch on the topic that I'm that I'm researching for. And as I'm doing that, I'm keeping this Word document and I'm, it's all bullet pointed. I am, I love using bullet points and all the different levels of bullet points, you know, the indenting and the organization, you know, and the headings. And I just, it it really makes it so much more easier. Like right now I took notes on how I take notes and I'm actually reading a bullet point about how I use bullet points. (laughs) So there's just something visually about it as I'm talking and as I'm thinking that uh, pulls it all together. In fact, Sometimes I wish that all written material was bullet pointed instead of written out in paragraph form. It's it's just I love it just so much easier for me to sort of keep track of all the information. Now sometimes these pages of notes will be, you know, dozens and dozens of pages, maybe sometimes it's five pages, but it's all in this bullet point thing and I'm 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 taking notes, I'm, you know, writing stuff down, I'm copying and pasting into my notes from different journal articles and I'm categorizing as I go, but it's pretty jumbled at the beginning. And so every once in a while, I have to kind of organize everything. And usually that's at the end. Usually at the end of, like, gathering all of my notes on the material, I start organizing all the notes. Like, okay, well, this this looks like it has to do with uh, introduction stuff. So I sort of put it up at the beginning. And that can take a long time. This is actually kind of a not-so-fun part of the process because it's a, lot, it's a lot of tedious reading and going, okay, where do I put this? And it's hard because... So another benefit to doing it this way is that as I'm gathering all the notes, I'm I'm passively reading it. I'm sort of skimming it, and it's it's giving me this overview in in my short term memory about the landscape of of the topic. So say I'm doing attachment uh, theory, there as I'm looking over all the material, I'm all these different uh, topic mini topics within the overall all topic are starting to pop out like. I'll see that the strange situation in, in attachment theory is referenced uh, a lot. And so I go, okay, well, that's a pretty important uh, chapter in the attachment theory discussion. And so I'll start kind of gathering stuff in and, and it, it, it has to do with short term memory and see if I can explain this. Like in order for me to research for a podcast episode, I have to have very specific information written down, but I have to also understand the entire topic as a whole at all the same time. And uh, because just taking a bunch of notes, it's like, how does it all fit together? Because, you know, I could just read notes, right? I could just read an outline. But, in order to make it interesting, and I learned this as a professor in order to make it interesting and, and compelling, and really to make it so that people learn something as a as a presenter, you have to have the whole thing kind of downloaded into your short term memory, and you also have to develop some kind of overall thesis about what you 're trying to say. This is the difference you know if if you 're a student or, or and or a teacher if you 've been in school. And there's a big difference between the way a teacher presents a topic as opposed to the way a student presents a topic. A lot of classes, you'll have a student presentation assignment. The students get bought, get up in the front of the class, and they present on a topic. Often, the student will present it as an outline. They will say, introduction, you know, da, da, da number one and they just sort, of, and it's dry and it's boring and oh you know there's information and you're maybe picking up a few things here and there but you're not really learning anything because there's not an overall thesis and uh, the presenter doesn't know how to emphasize certain certain things doesn't know how to compel the audience to to further their knowledge and to think and to you know expand their mind and to be inspired to pay attention And so as I'm reading it, I'm starting to gather these points like that, you know, like I'm reading attachment theory and and certain things about it are getting me kind of riled up. And I start thinking like, wow, you know, there's a powerful idea here. And if I just sort of glance over it without really emphasizing it, the audience isn't really going to get the big point here, which is that, you know, there's such a magical part of this. You uh, clinicians out there, who have listened to my Attachment Deep Dive uh, probably learned about attachment theory prior to me talking about it, right? And have had a, a variety of levels of inspiration from those people who taught you at the attachment theory, right? Some may have been highly inspirational and some were not. And and you might have just learned the basics, but you didn't really get inspired to really let it into your wisdom and understanding so that it, so that it was useful to you. So that's the other thing. The other thing is, is as I'm reading these, uh, this sort of dry clinical material, I start thinking about all these clinical examples, case examples with my clients, case examples of my family and friends, case examples of myself. And I start taking notes on that, like, ooh, you know, that, that inspires, I should probably talk about this or that. And that's an important piece too, right? Because as a presenter, you got to make it personal. You got to make it human. You got to make it real. And a lot of the clinical literature uh, doesn't have that at all. In fact, ninety nine point nine percent doesn't. So you got to start, you know, making it real in that way. So I'll start taking notes on that. Then at a certain point, I will usually uh, put it down and kind of let it sit for a bit. Let it simmer. Because when I'm inundated with all the information, I can't really see the forest through the trees, and so I have to take some time. And almost always, nine times out of ten, if I give it a couple of days, I just put the notes down. I did all this work; it's all organized. I put it down for a couple of days, and I return to it after a couple of days. All these new things will start occurring to me, and I'll be like, "Oh my God, yeah, that whole section needs to be reworked. That whole section needs to go. That whole section needs to be like emphasized more." I now have finally figured out the bigger point, because you know, Renee, you're asking, how how do I figure out what's the Us, how do you present your your knowledge objectively while also giving your opinion? Uh, no, what was your? You had some question. Uh, oh, is there a method for making connections, or do they just happen? So that's my method for making connections. Is all of that that I just said. <laughs> the other thing that I'll do is I'll go online at some point, some sort of late stage, and I'll just sort of Google the thing. Like if I was doing attachment theory, I've I've looked at all the clinical literature, I've read all the books on my shelves, and now I go on the internet. You know, I'll go on Reddit, and I'll just Google it, and I'll, and I'll see, you know, what are uh, lay people talking ab- about it. What are pop psychology sites like psychology today? What are they saying about it? What are uh, people saying about it in the news? And that will also help me because uh, it helps me to understand where uh, the listeners are coming from because they consume these these products online. It also sometimes uh, provides some connections. It's like, oh, okay, that's an angle I hadn't thought about before. And I'll start incorporating that into my notes. I take more nor mo, more notes. I take you know, I organize the notes more. And at this point I have to start weeding stuff out, because usually my notes are too long. And so I have to figure out, okay, that is not a priority. So those three pages of notes that I that I spent maybe a week developing, it's just not worth it. So I'm gonna I so what I do is I copy, I cut it out and I put it at the very end. And what I figure is like as I'm doing the episodes And I get to the end of my primary notes, and I find that the rejected notes are still worth it, then I'll go to those rejected notes. But usually I don't. Um, And, yeah. And then I I sit down in front of a microphone like I'm doing right now, and I just start yammering. (laughs) So that is what I do. Let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from an anonymous patron. He writes... I am a high school educator, and I have some questions. As a male, I have found some of my most challenging students to be females around the ages of 13 or 14. I have several students that I hypothesize may be externalizing negative feelings towards me linked to their relationships with their fathers. I was wondering if you had any tips for how to deal with this. Since listening to your episodes about teen identity and attachment deep dive... I have been trying to do my best to weather the storm, per se. With this, I mean that I'm doing my best to avoid the trap of recreating the conflict that they are trying to recreate, despite the frequent, seemingly unjustified hostility they direct towards me. End of email. Yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, could be coincidence that it's females. It's certainly possible that the males in your class... And people of all genders uh, have uh, issues that they are trying to externalize with you. But yeah, I mean, it's possible. The thing here is that you're doing is great. I just want to say you're trying, you're uh, trying to provide a corrective experience for these kids. You are not falling into the trap, you're not allowing yourself to be socialized by their projective identification to agree with their past relationship they if you know i'm understanding you right are trying to socialize you and manipulate you to act like their abusive parents and you are refusing to do that which is highly corrective and therapeutic for them having said all that you're not their therapist you're a teacher you have a job to do uh, i as a therapist have the luxury and the space and the time to provide corrective experiences for teenagers because I'm not in charge of them. I don't have to teach them anything. I don't have to keep them in line. You're a teacher. You have to keep them in line. You got to make sure they don't disrupt the other, you know, kids in class. And you can't dedicate all your time to one student. They have to do their work or else. So it is a balance that I'm guessing uh, you have struck on some level. But let yourself off the hook a little bit because being a teacher – it, do, it doesn't provide you with the freedom that you would have if you were like me as a therapist. But yeah, uh, you know, keep doing that. It's probably helping. The key is that I'm not hearing from you, like maybe you're doing this, is to make sure that you get your support. Because as you go through that, you're going to be uh, internalizing some of the negative feelings that they are socializing you to feel. They're giving you their feelings. They're asking you to metabolize the feelings that... They cannot metabolize. Uh, Feelings of inadequacy, anger, trauma, abuse, sadness, loneliness, abandonment. And you're going to absorb that. And if you don't have a way of healing after those interactions, then you're going to burn out. So uh, to keep fighting the good fight, you have to have someone or you know some people or some way of healing from those experiences. So I hope that you do that. You can obviously go to therapy, but something a little bit more mundane would be you go home and talk with your spouse, and you uh, vent and let it out. So that's what I'll say about that. He had another question here. He says, "I also had a question regarding schema therapy. I was wondering if you could describe the process and goals when addressing an emotional deprivation schema, particularly when the when the detached protector mode is the default in emotion emotive situations end of email so uh to put this in a little bit uh, broader or more understandable terms and he has a sophisticated way of asking this question, but essentially what he's saying is, and I'm guessing he's talking about himself that he was emotionally deprived growing up, so as a when we're all growing up, we have a lot of emotional needs and we, we need people to empathize with us and to validate our emotions to support us, to care about us to love us and what he's saying is he didn't get enough of that, and so he developed a schema that people do not provide in that way so when, when we're not given enough love, we developed a, we develop a schema a, a belief system that is core to our personality, that it's like, yeah, you know, other people don't really care about me. No one really cares about anybody. I I can't depend on other people. And so he also says that as a a result, his um, maladaptive coping is detachment. So he defensively or in a protective manner, detaches from his emotions from other people as a way of helping to cope with this schema that no one loves him, which denies him his needs of love and nurturing. So you're asking, you know, the process and goals when addressing it. Well, the the it's hard to describe and hard to summarize quickly without getting to know people in therapy. But in general, the principles are that deep down you have this need to be nurtured and loved. You have a need for dependency. You have a need to be vulnerable. You have a need to cry on someone's shoulder and have them support you. You have a need to tell them uh, to, to tell other people, I'm sad, and I, I'm confused, and I, I feel helpless, I don't know what I'm doing. And for those people to listen to you and be there for you and to make you feel like you're not alone. We all have that need. And you have that need in spades, because you've been deprived of that need. So you have 10 times the need that the average person has, because you've you've rarely been, uh, you know, that, that need of yours has rarely been met. So you have a lot of build up in that way. <clears throat> and so Trust that deep down, you have that need. Now, you probably cut yourself off from that need because you like to be in denial of it, your detachment as, you know, your protective attachment. Or protective detachment is making it so that it's hard to be aware of that need that you have, but it's down there and it probably sneaks out occasionally as it usually does. And so the key is, is trust that that's down there and find a situation in your life where that need will just start naturally manifesting itself. It's not a matter of like forcing yourself to be vulnerable or forcing yourself to be in a relationship where there is tenderness. It's a matter of being in a relationship where the need will just emerge in you. It's I'm trying to think of an analogy. It's like, um, like, let's say that you, there's uh, uh, someone that you're taking care of. Let's say a dog. Let's say you're taking care of a dog and you know the dog is thirsty and, uh, and so the, uh, the, the dog has this deep need for, th- for water. Well, you, if you just tell the dog, go find water, the dog knows the. I don't know where, I don't know where to go. So I give up. But if you get some a bowl of water and you put it in front of the dog and maybe the dog is a little scared because it's a feral dog or something and you're just like and so you have to be you have to put the water out in front of the dog and you have to back away and you have to be very nice and eventually the dog runs out and drinks the water. So think of your needs as that way, the, the, there's tremendous motivation to seek out that water to seek out that oasis, but you have to create an environment where the need will actually run towards the source. And that usually involves being in a secure relationship and then encouraging yourself to be vulnerable and dependent for people who are emotionally deprived and they're protecting themselves by detaching they usually will find it abhorrent and very weak to be dependent on other people and to be vulnerable. And the fact is, is all of us need to be dependent on other people at times and all of us need to be vulnerable at times. So uh, if, if you think about those words, whatever it means to you, uh, vulnerability dependent on others, you know, truly in someone else's care, just handing yourself over to them. Uh, But you got to have a relationship where that actually uh, is safe to do. And sometimes given your schema, it's going to be hard. This is why you need to be in therapy, (laughs) by the way. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is also from an anonymous patron. She writes, How can I cope with missing my therapist between sessions? It's painful to the point of wanting to cry sometimes and so distracting that I can't do my job. Sometimes I think that if I had known I was going to get so attached to my therapist, I would never have started therapy to begin with. I want to talk to him about it, but I freeze every time I'm about to bring it up. I've been seeing him for three years, but I still have a hard time trusting him. End of email. Yeah, I get emails about this almost every day. So I say that not to trivialize what you're going through, but to normalize what you're going through. It's rare that people will admit that they're even going to therapy, and it's apparently even rarer that people will admit that they have these kinds of feelings towards their therapist. For whatever reason, I've become a lightning rod for these things, and so I'm here to tell you a lot of other people are going through this. As If you listen to this podcast, you'll hear very similar emails from other people, the issue is, is that I'm guessing for you, you've been relationally traumatized, abandoned, abused, neglected, harmed, um, chaos, drug addiction, something. And so you have a deep need, as I was talking about before, for dependency that you've never really fully been um, uh, uh, cared for enough. And so you latched on to your therapist and it's a good thing. It's corrective. It's healing. You're slowly trusting. It takes you a while to trust this therapist. You've been seeing him for three years. You don't really trust him fully yet. And that makes sense because you've been through a lot in your life. And so it's hard to trust other people. And you're taking your time. And that's okay. Believe me, three years in therapy, it's not that long. I know it feels like a long time, but it's not. When it comes to relational traumas, I I hate to bum people out, but you're talking about 25 years of therapy before you're like 50% done with the healing. And some people will say, like, well, research shows that borderline personality disorder can be treated in one year. And I'm here to tell you that the research regarding that is some symptom reduction, or they don't know, or many people can see they no longer qualify for the diagnosis. But no longer qualifying for a personality disorder diagnosis is a far cry from from feeling good and having good relationships. Many, many people have difficulty with relationships that don't meet criteria for personality disorders. And this is the treatment that takes years and years and years. Treating borderline could take years and years and years too, as in, you know, so, uh, so is that. But anyway, so three years, it's not that long. It makes sense that you're having a hard time trusting him, and that's okay. And that doesn't mean that therapy is worthless. It doesn't mean that you're a failure as a client. It doesn't mean that your therapist is bad. It just means that it's going to take some time. Now, it's good to ask this question. It's good to think about it. Maybe you need to do a little bit more work to trust. Maybe you need to talk with your therapist about the fact you don't trust him yet. You know, what, what, you you know, say, you know, what can you do to help me trust you more? That kind of thing. But you need to trust him in order to say that. So maybe, you know, you just have to wait a couple more years for you to be able to say that. I don't know. But you're saying, you know, how can you cope with missing your therapist between sessions? That's a hard thing to do. You know, the, the, I get this question almost always framed in the way that you're asking it. It's how do I cope? Well, the thing is, and usually there's some kind of trick, right? Like mindfulness or distract yourself or something. And certainly those things can help. But really, there's not a lot of things you can do. You know, I could tell you of certain skills, certain cognitive behavioral skills that might uh, take the edge off. uh, Distractions. Uh, finding others secure, having a hobby, maybe having a keepsake from your therapist. Sometimes people will write in and say that they'll ask their therapist to give them something, and the therapist will give them some trinket that they have on their shelf, and that will uh, help them to feel connected to their therapist in between the sessions and, and that kind of thing. But barring anything like that, you know, the fact that you're suffering is just a part of your recovery. It, it, no pain, no gain when it comes to relational healing. And to because c- in order for you to have a corrective experience with your therapist so that you can heal, you know, in order to have a, uh, an intense relationship with him that uh, you are invested in, that, it, that you depend on and you absorb as a, an example of what a healthy relationship actually can look like and experientially over time heal from the wounds of your past. In order for that to happen, you have to have tremendous feelings for him. And as a consequence, you're going to miss him in between sessions because the, in, a, in the best of all worlds, what, what would have happened is back when you were three years old, your parents were were strong, secure, non-chaotic attachments for you. And guess what? Parents don't only see you one hour a week. They're with you all the time. So it's natural that you're in between sessions wanting your daddy to come back to you. But the fact is, is that's just not possible. You can ask for another session a week, maybe, you know, maybe that'll help. uh, And that uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe you can't afford it. But uh, it, it makes sense it but that doesn't mean that the therapy is not working. It just means that it, it's it's just a necessary feeling that you're going to have and you're just going to deal with. I get a, again I get I, I'm guessing at least 100 people listening to me right now are like, oh my god, that's me. And so the thing I want to tell you is that it's a part of your recovery. No pain, no gain. As an analogy, if someone was to recover from cocaine addiction, you don't expect it to be all fun and games. You don't expect it to be all roses. It's going to be – there's going to be some days where you're going to be really craving cocaine and you're going to be really upset and you're going to – maybe even you'll relapse. And there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some – you know, you're going to dig down deep and it's going to be hard. And you're going to have to do a lot of things to distract yourself. It's a whole system – Well, as you heal from those relational traumas, there's a lot of feelings are going to come up, a lot of longing, you know, because until you met this therapist, my guess is you avoided relationships altogether and you turned off that longing for other people. You said, I give up, but that came with its own ongoing pain and now you've opened yourself up to this therapist and you've allowed yourself to long for him in a way that, you know, a child longs for their parents. And with that comes all that pain. And you're asking yourself, if I knew this was going to happen, I I should never have started therapy. I get that. It's a normal feeling. It'd be the same feeling for the person addicted to cocaine as they're recovering. If I knew that the pain from recovery from cocaine uh, abstinence was going to be so high, I never would have quit cocaine. Well, you see the irony in that right or you see the problem with that thinking it makes sense that you think that but it also uh, den- denies the reality which is that by going to therapy by absorbing the secure attachment you're getting better it's not going to feel good all the time it's going to feel bad sometimes and it's going to be hard to trust but you just do what you can you muddle through it and you just keep going you just you just keep at it now having said all that you can actually accelerate things by trying to push yourself. Take baby steps. You're, you're saying that you want to talk with him about it, but you freeze up every time you bring it up. You know, you want to say, I miss you in between sessions. You want to bring that up, but, you know, you freeze up every time. Well, why do you freeze up? Well, because you're terrified, naturally, because in your past, whenever you opened up to people that you were you know, longing for and, and pleading towards, they would reject you or harm you or ignore you or blah, blah, blah. And your body is saying, don't do it because this could go badly. So you have to convince yourself that it's not going to go badly this time because this is a therapist who has proven to you that they're going to be with you through thick and thin. Uh, your therapist has been with you three years. Your therapist will probably be with you as long as you want to work with that person and so uh, you you have to beat that into your head and say, "I can trust this person so if you want things to accelerate and you want the, if you really want to cope with missing your therapist in in between sessions uh, accelerating your recovery is the answer, and part of that means you've got to you've got to do some work when I was going to therapy in my mid twenties I'd be driving to the therapist's office, and I'd be sweating. I'd be having these like cold sweats of fear for myself. And I'd be like, Oh, God, you know, I I guess I could just phone it in on this session. And I wouldn't have to work so hard. But there was a part of me that was like, dude, you gotta work, you gotta take the leap, you gotta say that thing that you're gonna have a hard time saying. And it didn't feel good. And I got cold sweats about it. But when I was at my best, 50% of the time, I took those leaps. So it, you can't just wait for therapy to happen to you. I mean, you can, and that, you, and that can work, but it's not going to accelerate things. So sometimes you just got to do it. Now, the 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 answer would be uh, talk with your therapist about how to take that leap. But in order to – it's a catch-22, right? Maybe, you know, maybe talking with me about it will help. Maybe talking with someone else about it will help. I don't know. But finding finding that, that motivation can help you. And maybe as a way to motivate you, I get a lot of emails from people saying that they followed my advice, they told their therapist how they felt, and it went wonderfully. And it totally opened up this whole new chapter in therapy. So I can't say that's going to happen to you, but... It it definitely raises the possibility of that happening. Okay, let's take a break. When we get back, I'll answer more emails. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron, do so now. Go to patreon.com and you get access to all of our best episodes, I would say. So go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. That's the way we know that you like what we are doing here. Also, we are coming up on our thousandth episode, December 12, 2019, 4 p.m. on YouTube. We will be YouTube-living with Umberto, Bob, Drain, Rebecca, and all those people. We're going to be playing some tougher bluffs and having a good time. We might do a call-in, but I don't know if I can figure that out technically. Also, if you become a $10 or up patron by the time uh, of the 11th or the 1000th show December 12th, then you will get a signed 1000th episode card from us in the mail. And you can also get a pin if you become the the coffee mug level. So, if you've been thinking about upgrading on on Patreon, do so now. Go to patreon.com and upgrade to another tier. That's another way we know that you love us. Also, we're giving out two scholarships to mental health students, two scholarships for $2,000. That's a total of $4,000 to people who are in grad school and are uh, in need a little boost to help them make a positive difference in the world. So go to psychologyinseattle.com and apply for the scholarships there. Also review us on iTunes, join us on Facebook. That's where we do all of our games and our announcements. And if you want to contact me and you are a patron and you want me to read, you know, a question on the old podcast here, go to the website and use the contact us page. That's where I I prefer people to contact me. All right. This next email uh, did so through the website. Uh, Anonymous patron says, I just listened to your podcast on narcissism which provided lots of examples that clarified many things for me. While listening, I found myself wondering about more theoretical aspects of narcissism. It appeared that there are two main opposing theories on the origin of narcissism. One is that narcissism is a defense mechanism against a hidden low self-esteem. So just chiming in here. Yeah, that's the, the main conceptualization of narcissism. Uh, I would say it's deeper than that. It's not just hidden low self-esteem. I, I would characterize it as a a deep, uh, a deep low self-esteem or even deep self-hatred, deep shame, and also deep suffering and also a lack of self. Just it's not necessarily that they have a what we would typically call low self-esteem. It's that they don't really have any sense of who they are and what they want they, they don't even have a basis for their value at all. And so they create this shell on top of that of grandiosity to trick themselves and other people into believing that they are worth something. Uh, mainly why they do it is to trick themselves because when they look into their soul, they – they see emptiness. Now, they're not empty. What is actually happening in the metaphor that I've been using is that they're staring into their bedroom, and they have the lights off, and they can't see anything. And they interpret that as there's nothing in there. But of course, when you turn the lights, or when you turn the dimmer up, you start seeing the bed, the desk, the chair, the posters. But uh, prior to that, staring into the darkness, it's, it looks like an abyss. But um, it actually isn't an abyss. It, it just seems that way. And so a big part for people with all cluster B and any personality disorder actually is to help them connect with themselves. Uh, there is, they think they don't have a self, so they actually don't even investigate the their self at all, and they run from it because it's so terrifying. It's, I, I can't express how deeply terrifying it is for people to face themselves when they have a, a personality disorder. It's, it's not just like, oh, I don't know who I am. It is a deep sense of brokenness and worthlessness. It's like, the, even the phrase low self-esteem or worthlessness implies that there's an opposite side to that. What they just see is this giant abyss. And I've I've been with people side by side as they face that abyss, and, and it is not pleasant for them. I mean, it is a traumatic experience. And so narcissistic people, are, they occasionally face that abyss, and they quickly go back to grandiosity as a defense. So going on with your email here. There is an alternative theory which says that there is no inherent hidden low self-esteem. Instead, we can explain narcissism based on a low degree of neurosis or guilt felt by the narcissistic person. Based on your experience for your encounters with narcissists, can you elaborate on the data for and data against this alternative theory on the development of narcissism? Yeah, it's a frequent question I get. People will say uh, they'll they'll be like okay I get that for some people they are narcissistic because they have uh, a deep you know worthlessness and a lack of self and they create this defensive narcissism on top to trick themselves and other people into believing that they are worth something and they need to uphold it quite strongly because if they don't uh, they very quickly have to face themselves. And that's why they have to constantly feed their, their narcissistic supply because uh, the the distraction needs uh, constant fuel. And other people will say, well, you know, I know some people who are narcissistic who don't seem to have any worthlessness below the surface. And also, I know some people who are narcissistic who have been really quite mean to me. And I have a hard time empathizing with them, thinking that they have this deep sense of of shame, because I just I hate that person, that person abused me for 15 years. And I get that, that's legitimate. And I'm not gonna, you know, take that away from you. But the fact is, is people who are narcissistic have deep shame. Now, whether or not you have ever seen it, or whether or not they've ever expressed it around you, um, you know, that's, that's a question. So I get a lot of this, these questions like, well, surely there are some narcissistic people who are they're just purely narcissistic, right? They're just really into themselves. The fact is is that a personality disorder is a disorder. It's something in which shoots yourself in the foot. Now, you could have someone who just has really high self-esteem and they might brag a lot and they don't feel worthless on the inside. But As long as it doesn't rise to a level that it interferes with their relationships significantly, then it's just a personality quirk. And you might not like that person and and they might have hurt your feelings in some ways. But if we looked at them more closely, we wouldn't diagnose them with a personality disorder. Having said that, the question that you're asking is – is about neurosis and guilt, and the the larger uh, research area is around the fear of guilt or the or the fear of shame and of shame proneness and of of uh, guilt proneness. So it's actually not incompatible with the expert and my opinion about narcissistic personality. So uh, to sort of uh, explain this a little bit. People who have narcissistic personality disorder have been found to have less shame and less guilt. So what are we talking about here? So you're asking a narcissistic person. So everyone out there in podcast land, think of someone who is narcissistic and then think about if they were asked a question like, so do you have any, you know, how much shame do you feel about who you are? Do you do you feel ashamed of the way you look? Do you feel ashamed of your career? Do you feel do you feel ashamed of your house or your clothes or things you say? Um, another question you would ask is, you know, do you feel guilty for the things you've done to people? Do you do you feel guilty for having more having a better car than other people, or do you feel guilty for saying something that hurts someone's feelings? Well it's pretty obvious to me that you're going to find an association between people saying uh no i i don't feel shame or guilt about those things and with you're going to find an association with that response and narcissistic personality right because of their grandiose uh, defense, they defend themselves against such notions of, of guilt and shame, of notions that they have made a mistake. Because if the, I, I've seen this happen, you know, with pe- people high on the spectrum, particularly. When they are threatened with an idea that they have made a mistake, everything comes crumbling down around them unless they can find a cognitive way of spinning it so that they are not to blame. And you'll and this is one of the most annoying and often abusive or I would say sometimes abusive characteristics of people with narcissistic personality disorder is if you're in a relationship with that person, you know, everyone makes mistakes. And sometimes you just have to admit that and just be, oh, I'm sorry that I made that mistake. It can be over little things like you you accidentally put the wrong date in the calendar or something and the narcissistic person. Because they need to uphold this notion that they are perfect and wonderful and you know beyond reproach, they they will defend themselves over the dumbest things. You know you'll like uh, you make an appointment with them to meet them at five thirty and they show up at six and you're just like oh you know what happened was traffic bad and and the narcissistic person is like no what do you mean and, and you're like well you know we we set the appointment to meet at five thirty and it's six o'clock right now. And the narcissistic person will have this split second reaction of like, oh my god, maybe I'm wrong, or oh my god, he's right. It, it was on my calendar as five thirty, and I just read it wrong. But for them to it for and then they and then they think, okay, from it's it's socially responsible for me to admit guilt that I did something wrong, or that I just flaked and came late. But to do that opens the door a tiny little bit to this notion that the narcissistic person is not perfect. And if the narcissistic person is not perfect, then the narcissistic person has to acknowledge that they have flaws. And if they acknowledge that they have flaws, then all of that emptiness and shame and worthlessness comes rushing through the door. So they have to keep that door slammed shut. They can never admit that they did anything wrong. So what you're proposing, anonymous emailer is patron, is that, Uh, You know, you're saying low degree of of guilt felt by the narcissistic person. That's not it's not incompatible with the expert opinion of the of the personality. Um, Now, you asked, okay, what's the data for and the data against for um, what you're calling an alternative theory, but it's not actually alternative. Um, It is hard to come by the data for narcissistic people. measuring borderline is actually easier because you can ask people, you know, are you suffering and borderline people tend to, there's no threat to their, to their defensive structure to admit that they're, that they're suffering. To the narcissistic person, for them, again, to admit that they are suffering, they have to admit that there's something wrong with them, which is, of course, uh, deeply troubling and scary and horrible to them. So when you give them surveys, so remember that when you're, when you're gathering, quote unquote, data on personality disorders, you can't measure a numeric thing. You have to ask people questions. You have to say and you have to hope that they're honest with you. And you have to hope that they have self awareness. Okay, how, how many narcissistic personality disordered people have self awareness? Well, not many because if they do again they have to look at themselves and see the abyss and they don't want to do that and and they they shouldn't do that unless they're properly supported so when you when you so when you do measures of narcissism usually what you're doing is you're asking for their conscious uh, self concept so you you ask them questions and this is a you know a popular measure in front of me it's called the narcissistic personality inventory and it it's questions like I would prefer I would prefer to be a leader. I see, mes- I see myself as a good leader. I will be a success. People always seem to recognize my authority. I have a natural talent for influencing people. I am assertive. I like to have authority over other people. I am a born leader. I rarely depend on anyone else to get things done and so on. So but, so they can, they can answer yes to those questions, right? They can be like, yeah, I'm a born leader. I'm awesome. Uh, I'm a good person, but when you ask them, you know, do you have a deep shame, uh, or are you, do you have a hidden worthlessness, but beneath the surface, well, of course they're going to say no, because, because it, it's actually not even a, they're not even aware of it half the time or even most of the time. So, uh, it would be a hard thing for the narcissistic person. To answer those questions honestly, one because they're not aware of it, and two, even if they kind of are, they don't want to. They don't want to admit it. So it takes a clinician, such as me, a specialist in narcissistic and cluster B personality disorders, to actually assess this sort of thing over time. As I always say, I will. Uh, I will reserve judgment about personality disorders until I've met with someone. Uh, in a good enough context therapeutically clinically for 5 10 15 20 sessions and only then do i make a tentative idea about their personality and everyone is on some sort of personality spectrum if not multiple so it it takes time and so research and data doesn't really lend itself to that form of data gathering right if you need a clinician to subjectively experience the personality of someone for 20 sessions in order for that person, for that participant to be categorized as having narcissistic personality disorder, then, you know, that's, that does that's not, there's, there's not enough money to uh, pay for that kind of research, or at least rarely there is. So it's, it's hard to demonstrate that yes, indeed, narcissistic personality disordered people have a deep sense of worthlessness. You know, X, you know, X percentage of people diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder have worthlessness because, it, it, again, it's hard for them to, to admit that. Um, the other thing that I'll say that you're getting at, Anonymous Patron, is that there's a lot of definitions of narcissism. And and that's fine. It confuses everybody. But, you know, like in the lay public, the uh, term narcissism is just used for people who brag and who are self-centered and who are full of themselves, right? It doesn't refer to the personality disorder. Uh, in fact, I would say it rarely does. Or there's some overlap, some minor overlap. For clinical people like myself, it refers to what I've been talking about. To developmental people in my field, it refers to the normal stage of child development that we all have, that we all have to navigate, and we retain uh, into adulthood, you know, saying, like, we all have normal uh, normal self-esteem and narcissism, right? So there's a lot of different, and there's a lot of other uh, usages of the term. So, you know, uh, and the other thing to recognize is that when we talk about people with narcissistic personality disorder, we're not talking about one type of personality you can be extroverted and be narcissistic you can be introverted you can be braggy you could be not braggy you could be very self-deprecating as a dino nar- i know narcissistic people who are on the narcissistic personality spectrum who are extremely self-deprecating and would never ever brag about anything So that's confusing, right? Well, that's because personality is complicated and it takes clinical experts such as myself to navigate uh, those kinds of nuances. Um, And so... uh, So just know that there's a lot of different – when we're talking about narcissistic personality disorder, we're not talking about one type of person. There's some – you know, some people are aggressive and some people are – would never harm a fly. Some people are extremely abusive to the people around them. Some people, again, would never harm a fly. Some people are very success-oriented and, you know, they're always climbing the ladder and they they have very impressive resumes. Others don't. They – they, they don't care about that kind of thing, or they haven't pursued that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different types of personalities that will suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. All right, so going on with your email. Also, do you think that there is a practical implication, uh, effective treatment, as a consequence of agreeing with other, either side of these theories? Um, so again, they're not incompatible. These "quote unquote" theories that you're proposing. Um, so, so I will say there is one other conceptualization of narcissistic personality that I actually did talk in the deep dive, in which some people are just raised t- to be narcissistic. So, if you know to play a, a semi-stereotype but somewhat true, you take a rich blonde male heterosexual. Uh, you know, Protestant kid in, uh, um, you know, upper uh, New York or something. And he is uh, taught that he's special and he is showered with praise and he's, he's a beautiful kid and he is told that he's beautiful and everyone wants to, you know, be with him and everyone thinks he's cool and everything he says is funny and smart because of the way that we are biased about that. And society just treats him this way. Well, it's not uh, doesn't take a genius to think that this person is going to grow up with an overinflated idea of their importance in the world. And they might even be given ideas that white people are better or rich people are better. I mean, might. It's actually for sure. All of us are, you know, propagandized to regarding class and race and and good looks and all that kind of stuff. And so, so he walks around in a world that actually tells him that he is better than other people and he is entitled. Now, if this fella is given enough uh, secure attachment growing up, then he has a good person, he has a, a solid basis for his personality and he doesn't have a need for a grandiose defense, right? But he has this grandiose idea of himself and he starts to enact that. The difference between that fella and someone who actually has narcissistic personality disorder is this blonde, Protestant, good-looking fella, when he bumps up against reality that he isn't special and that he isn't entitled, this usually happens in college or later on in life, then he adjusts. He he goes, oh, I guess I'm not that important. Uh, and I guess I was assuming that I would always get my way, but um, apparently I, I don't and they don't react or it takes them relatively short amount of time to adjust to that reality. Why? Because they don't need the defensive grandiosity to function in life. The narcissistic personality. Needs the grandiose defense to function. Without that defense mechanism, they crumble, crawl into a hole, and maybe even contemplate suicide. Many narcissistic people are deeply depressed or have bouts of deep depression, not because they suffer from depression, but because, again, they face the abyss occasionally. The the narcissistic supply starts to dry up for whatever reason, and they are faced with the fact. They're what they believe to be a fact that they're worthless. And so you're asking, you know, can um, can people be treated? Yeah, I've effectively treated all sorts of narcissistic people and borderline people and histrionic people and some psychopaths for that matter. Anyone who wants help in therapy can get help. The issue is, is that. If your personality disorder is such that makes it hard for you to admit you have flaws, then you're not likely to go to therapy, right? So not a lot of narcissistic people go to therapy. And when they do, they don't sustain it. People with borderline tend to go to therapy and they tend to sustain it. Why? Because their defensive structure is based on grasping for security in other people and uh, trying to have security. The, the borderline person had a defensive structure that did, they developed at the age of like, you know, one or two years old and perpetuated over time that involved reaching out and demanding love and alerting other people to when you need love and attention and uh, testing other people to make sure that they're trustworthy. And this is very conducive to therapy because the the therapist becomes the object of that grasping to the narcissistic person. They have dealt with similar traumas, but their defensive structure involves, I don't need anybody. I'm the best person on the planet. No therapist could really help me. Uh, You're, you're a, you know, you're a weakling if you go to therapy because I'm strong and I don't need anybody. And, um, and the borderline person, it's easy easier for them to admit that they have something wrong with them. Uh, now, therapy isn't about telling you that there's something wrong with you, right? But it does involve re- reflecting on the self and questioning whether or not there is quote-unquote something wrong with you or that you're, the thinking is wrong that you have. Now, not to say that borderline people are super jazzed about these notions that they're to blame for their problems. They certainly can be massively triggered by that. But again, the, the the their coping is to grasp and the for the for the narcissistic person they don't even they never even reach out for anything. The notion that a narcissistic person will wake up in the morning and say like "I need to talk to someone is completely antithetical to their defensive structure. having said that. Plenty of narcissistic people will hit, uh, you know, the end of the road, usually when they are going through a divorce or um, they've been fired from their job and that they've really hit rock bottom and their narcissistic supply can you know, has completely just been altered or dried up and their deep suffering will land them in therapy. And if the therapist knows what they're doing, they can actually retain them in, in that context and and really begin the healing process so that they don't need the defensive structure. You go on to say here also in the podcast, you mentioned that narcissists have empathy, but the empathy is impaired by the other stronger motivating factors. Does this mean that once you calm the narcissist down, he or she would be able to fully understand how hurtful some of their behavior has been? Have you been successful in doing this? Um, uh, End of email. Yeah, absolutely. People with narcissistic personality disorder deeply care, just like anybody else does. In fact, they almost care more because they've been neglected their whole life and they understand the value of a close, empathetic relationship. And... The problem is, again, because of their defensive structure and because they're they're mildly paranoid about uh, other people's intentions toward them because of the way they were treated, they they just rarely will open themselves up to the sort of relationship that involves empathy. But but yeah, they, they deeply have empathy. And yeah, you're right. Anonymous patron that once you quote unquote calm them down. And get them to feel secure and feel non-anxious and non-rejected, and and uh, maybe some narcissistic supply given to them, uh, and and they feel okay. Then, yeah, absolutely, they can have a ton of empathy. There's, and it's one of the biggest lies given on the internet. Uh, about personality disorders is that people with borderline and people with narcissistic personality disorder, that they don't have empathy. It's just simply not true. No expert in personality disorders believe that. They have impaired empathy, meaning that they have empathy, but it's impaired by their reactivity and their defensive structure. When you have a defensive structure that says, I'm flawless and I've done nothing wrong, and I'm perfect and I don't need anybody, then, and you, it's not a casual defense, right? It's actually a very desperate defense, a, a, a desperate defense that you have to put a lot of energy into. And as you put energy into that, you don't have time to look into other people's feelings. Think about times when you've really been suffering, you know, the depths of your sadness or anxiety. And someone around you is also going through something minor, but you believe it's relatively lesser than your suffering. Well it can be hard to even notice that that person, that other person is going through something difficult because you're so preoccupied naturally with your own suffering. Well, that's what it's like for narcissistic people. And I want to really drive this home because people tend to uh, villainize people with, with narcissism. And the thing is, is that they're, the only reason why they're being a jerk or the only reason why they're bragging and the only reason why they're even abusing other people is because they're deeply suffering. Now, I recently got an email and responded to you on the podcast someone said, you know, something to the effect of my husband has narcissistic personality disorder and I listen to your episodes on narcissism and um I you know I get that I, sh- I should have empathy for this person but I I this person is abusive to me and won't listen and won't actually participate in couple therapy and constantly blames me for everything and threatens me and emotionally abuses me. So I don't get it. So uh, when I say that the person is suffering and people need to understand that, I'm not saying you need to put up with them. <laughs> I'm not saying that if you are in a relationship or even just a mild relationship like a friend or a coworker, you know, if that person and you've decided or you think that that person has narcissistic personality and that person is being abusive to you, I'm not saying that the empathy extends to self-sacrifice. I'm not saying that just because uh, I'm proposing that the person is suffering deep down, that it justifies or validates their shitty behavior towards other people. Absolutely not. There is no excuse or Uh, there's an excuse in a sense, but everyone has the right to defend themselves and everyone has the right to uh, engineer their life so that there's the least amount of abuse possible. Sometimes that means that narcissistic people get rejected. And that's the catch-22 that these narciss and, you know, borderline and histrionic, all three of these personality types will tend to do this because of their condition in which they were massively mistreated, abandoned, uh, abused growing up. They have developed a personality structure that is such that they end up harming other people around them inadvertently, and then that pushes people away, which further causes them to feel abandoned and hurt and sad, and that's uh, a tragedy, but that doesn't mean you as a layperson or even you as a a clinician uh, in your personal life have to deal with that uh, you have absolutely the right to uh protect yourself and and by by all means um, you know do what you can um, i've I've worked with people like this before who have spouses who have personality disorders, and i'm fully supportive of them leaving their spouses um, meanwhile i'm telling them you know i I have an idea as to why your spouse is acting like that and and I have empathy for that person. But at the same time, if you want to leave, like, by all means, I will fully support that. So, but anyway, um, can people with narcissistic personality disorder, when they're calm, exhibit empathy? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've seen it all the time. And uh, whenever people ask me this, it's such a strange question to me because um, I see it so often, you know, and it, the, the, the notion of out there on the internet that people with narcissism don't have empathy is just it's such a strange thing it's like it's like you know I'm Asian American it'd be like if there was this notion well I guess there are I guess specifically there are notions about Asian Americans it's like all Asian Americans are good at math or something or all Asian Americans are model citizens it's like uh, what (laughs) Like, like I know some Asian Americans who are the opposite of model citizens and are terrible at math um so uh so these it's a stereotype about people with narcissism that is um, propagated by the internet, and you know, I always say this when it comes to personality disorders, the internet is um, not a good source when if you want to look up stuff about attachment style, for some reason, the internet is actually fairly okay it's not in depth for sure, but there's a, there's a fair amount of good information about attachment and attachment style. But when it comes to personality disorders, in my experience, 999 if not more, percent of the material is either at least somewhat flawed, if not deeply, deeply flawed. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself and please take care of other people because you deserve it and everyone else does too we